Hello, my name's Joanna Bailey. And I'm Tom Boone. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we have for you this week. Coming up in today's show, I'll look at how aviation is using COVID to its advantage, and Joe will see what's the answer to opening up international travel. Tom will look at an airline that's seeing better domestic demand than this time last year, while I question whether the UK is doing enough to support its airlines. Finally, I'll look at what's been happening with the Airbus A380 and our good friend the Boeing 737 MAX. So, now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show. And I think today, Tom, you'd like to kick us off with uh, something about COVID, using COVID to your advantage as an airline. How's that work then? Yeah, so I mean, it's really an interesting one. But um, obviously, with COVID ongoing, there have been a lot less flights. And in general, for airlines, that's been a very bad thing. Um, Lufthansa, working with the Deutsche Flugsicherung, Um, has been working in April and May to look at how they can cut down on unnecessary CO2 emissions. Um, And that's really being achieved by um, looking at sort of the whole operation when an aircraft's coming to land at Frankfurt. So usually what happens when you're coming into land on an airplane is um, the pilots obviously in contact with the controllers all the way down the controllers will say and like say you're cruising at 39,000 feet they'll like maybe initially drop you down to 18,000 feet then 9,000 feet and um, just for example and then 4,000 and you usually level off at each point and um, obviously it takes more power to fly straight than it does to fly down um, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, because obviously if you're going down, you've got gravity on your side, whereas if uh, you're trying gotcha. to stay level, you've, um, you're fighting against gravity a bit. So um, what they've basically been doing is um, testing continuous dis- descents. So um, instead of dropping a bit and dropping a bit and dropping a bit and dropping a bit, um, they just get um, a clearance from their cruising altitude right down to um, the altitude they need to be at when they join the final approach uh, okay. for the airport. Um, and so far, just from April and May, um, testing this out, so um, they have saved, I think it's 2,000 tonnes of CO2. Wow, that's significant. Um, yeah, 2,000 tonnes of CO2 has been saved just from this two-month trial, um, just from giving them the descent clearance right down to maybe three or 4,000 feet from 200 miles out. Um, so obviously that's a good thing, but here's why it's been helped by COVID. Um, it's because obviously like Frankfurt is a crazy busy airport. It's one of the busiest in Europe. And um, I think it's in the top 10 or the top 20 in the world. Um, so usually there's no time to um, sort this out because it's just so busy um but obviously with with no traffic um they've they've had all the space that they need to really give it a give it a go so cool um, i wonder how it feels as a passenger though do you think it's a a more kind of stomach churning experience to go from that altitude down to approach level in such a quick space of time or i don't think so because i think um it's probably you're probably descending at roughly the same rate it's just you're not leveling off in between so right um, it's it's the same sort of descent um but you're probably you you wouldn't even notice i think because you may notice when it levels off if you're 
doing a stepped approach down, but um, otherwise you've just got a constant movement. You, mm. I don't think you'd notice it. I'll have um, to remember to take my sucky sweets to clear my ears, though, if we're going down that quickly. <laughs> yeah. um, but, I mean, it's not just Lufthansa in Germany that's been working on its... Um, ecological pre uh, presence because um, obviously Boeing has its long-standing eco-demonstrator um, program as you well know Joe yeah and um, yeah um, its latest one saw it testing a 787-10 and while they're still being the numbers of this um, project are still being crunched they're already seeing positive um, data from um, the trials that they did. So what they did, for example, is um, with the landing gear, it takes up, I think, about 30% of the noise of an aircraft landing um, will be from the air resistance generated by the uh, landing gear, which aren't very oh, right. aerodynamic. No, right. Um, so what you they can did hear was... it on board when they go down, can't mm. you? It really starts yeah, exactly. kind of whooshing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what Boeing and um, Boeing did with um, Safran, I think, they've what they've done with the landing gear is they've just put a load of um, aerofoil shapes on the straight parts. All and right. um, they flew this aircraft over an array of a thousand um, different microphones all set out. And there was uh, 200 odd microphones attached to the fuselage of the aircraft as well. Um, and they haven't finished crunching the numbers yet, but the people on the ground who were taking the ground measurements said that it was noticeably different that the aircraft was quieter with these special things fitted to the landing gear. So there's not hopefully... then. Yeah, there's hopefully... Um, well, it's not um, carbon emissions that will hopefully um, make it to reduce the f um, noise emissions of the aircraft moving forward. That's pretty cool. And I guess it's quite an easy uh, kind of retrofit as well. So it's something that could go on to older aircraft as well as new ones out of the factory. So, yeah, good yeah, work. I mean, they were saying the one they were testing is is not sort of ready to go on an aircraft properly. But um, it's it's more to sort of, I mean, it's more a feasibility thing. And they've seen like it's, it's producing good enough actions that we'll want to take it forward. Cool. Well, I think we've seen quite a lot of stuff from the Eco Demonstrator program in the past that has eventually made it onto working aircraft, you know, um, even little things like the, I was reading the other day, the mood lighting that we get on a lot of Dreamliners these days, that started out as a an Eco Demonstrator test. And uh, obviously there's not an Eco component to it, but it does make passengers feel a lot better at the other end because it's kind of all to do with your circadian rhythms and stopping you feeling so jet lagged at the other end. So yeah, it's really cool to see these innovations coming through hmm. um but i think you wanted to talk about a sort of another innovation that is to do with covid yeah so this week i was or last week i should say i was attending the um, world aviation festival which is usually one of the highlights of the aviation calendar um but this year for obvious reasons it all had to go online um which was kind of a shame but it did mean i could attend all the uh, all the presentations in my pajamas so that was cool um but there was definitely a running theme that i wanted to talk about today um with a lot of the airlines that were in attendance that said they believed testing was going to be the answer to unlocking um, international travel. Now, IATA, the International Air Transport Association, they have been quite outspoken about their support for widespread testing. Um, 
So it was interesting to see that the airlines really do support this theory as well. In fact, the, the Lufthansa CEO, Carstens Four, said in his closing keynote speech that his new slogan for the airline was going to be testing, testing, testing. Um, and he believes that the North Atlantic will not be opened up without it. Um, so specifically, what they're talking about is pre-flight testing. This is seen as, as the answer not just to opening travel, but also to getting passenger confidence up. Because if you know that everybody on that plane has been tested before the flight and they are COVID negative, then you're not so worried about, you know, um, bug transmission whilst you're on the flight. Um, so, and IATA did some research that showed 87% of the passengers they asked were prepared to be tested before they flew. So, you know, passengers are behind this as well. Yeah, I would too. I think it's a great idea. And right through the festival, every single conversation that was being had, there was an element of airlines and airports pushing for widespread pre-travel testing. Um, in fact, AirAsia's CEO, and it's always interesting to hear from the Asian airlines because they're kind of slightly ahead of us when it comes to where COVID's going. Um, they said that even in the presence of a vaccine, they thought that testing would be fundamental. Um, and the reason for this is not every single person who wants to fly will have had the vaccine. And I think that's a really good point because everybody's talking about, you know, once we've got a vaccine, all the airlines will open back up, all the travel will open back up. But, you know, you're not going to be able to guarantee that every single person has had the vaccine. So there still needs to be some element of testing. So if everybody's behind this, what is it that's stopping testing happening. Um, well, the first hurdle, of course, is resources and, you know, having A, enough tests and B, the money to cover the cost of the tests. Um, in terms of who pays for the test, it's currently quite um, varied across the industry. So, in the US, for example, every person who needs a COVID test to fly has to pay for it themselves. And the costs vary. But when I was looking into it, the average is around $100 a person. So, it's not an insignificant number, you know, when, when you're looking at particularly a family of maybe three or four people flying. Um, when Lufthansa opened its COVID testing facilities at your airport, Tom, at Frankfurt, the costs ranged from, yeah, about $60. And I think it went up to about um, $150 for fast track. Um, and then from August, the German government began paying for the tests as long as they were taken within 72 hours. Um, so it's been kind of varied there. Finnair is launching a new testing regime and it will give passengers a 10% discount, but it's not free. Um, so yeah, you can see across the industry, it's really varied. But IATA's CEO, Alexander Dejuniak, said that he was absolutely sure government should be paying for these tests. So to quote what he said at the event, he said, when the government imposes some medical restrictions restrictions or medical measures, the international health regulations that have been issued by the World Health Organization say that governments should be paying for that. So I'm not sure governments would agree with his synopsis, but, you know, the message is clear. Um, and actually, it was interesting to listen to the CEO of Turkish airline Pegasus. And they said that if governments didn't pay for tests, it threatened the democratization of travel. Only the rich would be able to fly. And you can kind of see how that would work. It would just be people who either have their companies paying for their tests or who otherwise are able to access a test or those with lots of spare money. And that would be a real backwards step in terms of aviation because for the last 30 years it's been all about opening up the skies to people from all backgrounds and allowing everyone to travel um, however 
if IATA gets what it wants, the cost is actually a minor implication because they're not actually pushing for these expensive PCR tests and the kind of swabs up the nose and down the throat. What they want to see is rapid antigen testing, which is something much more simplistic from what I understand. And the uh, the Juniac said they only cost around six to eight dollars a test. So even if you wrap that into the price of the ticket, yeah. it really wouldn't make very I much mean, difference. When you book a ticket nowadays, you look at the taxes and fees and airport charges, and sometimes you're paying more in these airport charges and air passenger duty and all this than um, the ticket itself. So why not just exactly pop it in yeah. that, you know? If that was the test that was accepted, then mm. that would obviously, you know, that would be something passengers would more than be likely be happy to pay for probably, themselves. I mean, 99% the, of the people wouldn't even realise they were well, doing exactly. that. Well, exactly. Yeah, it would just be another fee and charge that was stuck on the ticket price. But the real hurdle here, and this is what I was coming to, is that it's not about who pays for the test or how much the test cost. It's the fragmentation of government responses to COVID. Because in order to implement testing pre-flight, every government needs to accept that and accept that standard of test. So, you know, you can't fly from London to New York with a test done in London if the government in New York doesn't agree that that test is a suitable measure. So, I mean, this is the really big issue is that the, the kind of downturn in global aviation is a global problem. But unfortunately, we've still got a very kind of government specific fragmented response to COVID. Um, so, unless and until governments are able to work together on this, it's going to really end up being a bit of a mess. And, you know, so I, I, all I can say is my feedback from the festival was every single airline, every single airport, every single person that was there was calling for a global response to coronavirus. And that is the only way we're going to come out of this with a healthy aviation industry. That's interesting. Yeah, it was. It was interesting. And, you know, I don't think testing is the be all and end all, but it's a massive mm. hurdle to overcome. Um, I think it will know. be sort of a wait and see, though, because I feel like still the it's not going to be top on anyone's list right now. No, it's not. Like, like anyone outside of the aviation exactly. industry. Exactly. We're in aviation, so we're always yeah. like, well, how is <laughs> it going to work for list. airlines? But uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, at the moment, I think uh, governments have lots of competing yeah. priorities, shall I we mean, say. You've, and you've got um, Britain just refusing to acknowledge any tests at the moment anyway, as exactly. far as travel's concerned, even though they're happy to use them to test the, their own population. So Yeah, it's very bizarre, very bizarre. But hopefully in the long run, we'll get a more coordinated response. So, of course, one place where you don't need testing is when you're flying domestically. And uh, Tom, you were having a chat with an airline that's actually seeing a real big rebound of domestic travel, weren't you? Yeah, so I was um, very fortunate to be able to chat with the CEO of one of my favourite airlines last week, Air Astana, um, which you should all know as the um, Kazakhstan carrier. Um, but if you don't, now you do. Um, so I was chatting to the CEO, Peter Foster, um, and we talked a lot of stuff. Obviously, it was mostly COVID because that's the big topic right now. Um, and it was really interesting to hear from him how his airline is um, seeing the world because obviously it's not the world's biggest airline, but it's I'd say it's doing well. Um, at the end of 2019, I called it one of the airlines to watch this year or even this decade um, because it's it's very up and coming. You know, it's launching uh, it's launched a new low cost subsidiary last year. Uh, it's launched a cargo carrier this year. Um, so 
it's really interesting to see because the fleet is still quite small, but it's doing um, interesting things because there's a lot of small long hauls uh, aircraft. So with the um, A321 long range, that's um, flying to Europe. But it was really interesting because he mentioned that, um, as I said, the uh, low-cost carrier subsidiary was launched last year. Um, and he mentioned that he's actually seen domestic demand now or the domestic network now is stronger than it was this time last year, which is um, if you have to listen to that twice to think that you've not misheard it. You know? Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. Because obviously this time last year, they only had two aircraft in their um, low cost airline. They've now got six. They've got more capacity. Um, but he also sort of pointed out why that might be the case. Um, and it was it was clear that like they haven't got the numbers or the data to back this up yet, but um, it's it's like an uh, X is happening and Y is happening is X causing Y sort of thing. We don't know, but um, basically Kazakhstan has a very comprehensive rail network. So um, a lot of people will use the train to get around long distances on the train. Um, but um, his theory is that on these longer domestic journeys, passengers are actually switching away from. The long train journeys because it's much um, more. I mean, like, would you rather sit on a train for eight hours or a plane for two hours? You know. Yeah, in terms um, of virus transmission, I think yeah. there's a clear favourite right there, isn't there? Yeah. Um, so it's really good to see that they're doing well um, domestically, but it seems things aren't quite as rosy outside of the country um, because he even called. Um, the long-haul international market pretty much dead in the water. Um, and that's, like you said, probably because of all of the travel restrictions that are in place. Um, it's just so hard for people to travel. And um, especially, like, I think the, the like, they're seeing, they're seeing the um, demand is on the sort of shorter haul international. And that's, I think, the same in Europe. You know, Lufthansa's doing well on its... Um, European stuff, Ryanair's doing well on its European stuff. Yeah. Um, but then the problem when you sort of hop across to the short haul um, international market is, again, travel restrictions because um, China and Russia are sort of the biggest international markets for Aerostana. Um, and to put that into context, like prior to COVID, Aerostana would operate 54 weekly flights to Russia. How many do you reckon it's operating now? Oh, I wouldn't like to say. I mean, uh, Russia's fairly closed, isn't it? I don't know, like half of that? Even less. It's um, currently only permitted one flight a week to Moscow. Wow. Um, and that's um, that's Russia saying you can only operate this many flights. And mm -hmm. um, it's a similar situation in China, which is the second largest source of traffic. Um but do you want to know how many, how, do you want to guess how many flights they're allowing in from Aerostana? Uh, Ten? None. Oh, right. <laughs> so it's it's an interesting one because even though they're seeing the demand for these routes, um, it's 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 strange because on the longer haul routes, they're, the problem is they're not seeing so much demand. But on the shorter haul routes, the demand is there. Um, but they just can't operate the flights because yeah. the receiving countries are saying, no. Um, no, you can only operate one or two. And they're in talks to up it, but it's it's going to be a case of um, wait and see. But I mean, we do wish them all the best and they, they seem to be doing well with themselves. So 
absolutely. I mean, it's interesting you bring up Russia there because we were looking at um, Aeroflot last week and actually they've got back to um, just slightly below 2019's domestic travel demand. And this is because there is this huge pent-up demand to go traveling. You know, people wanted to go on their summer holidays, but because Russia was so closed, you know, Russian tourists go all over the world usually. There's usually great swathes of them in the Red Sea and down in Greece, you know, and uh, and this year they couldn't go. So um, there was actually, um, I think they were just about not. 0.3% lower in terms of passenger traffic. And actually, some of the resort cities like um, uh, Sochi, for instance, on the Black Sea, they handled around 13% more passengers than they normally would at this time of year. Um, and it was the same across all the resorts. So it's like the Russians were rediscovering their domestic destinations and kind of keeping their airlines going that way, you know? I mean, it will be interesting to see how this translates going forward, because now they've discovered these domestic um, destinations, will they remain more popular, you know? Or will they go back? Is it will gonna, it all drop as off? As soon as everything's yeah, so open. Hard to say, isn't it? Mm, we'll have to wait and see. Because <laughs> I've still forgotten what our other pod, um, catchphrase was. we came up with was. I thought I'm it was to... cheese sandwich, but I no, guess no, no, we're, that was, we're that not was mentioning theme. that anymore. <laughs> but um, I'll have to re-listen re to the old podcasts. <laughs> if, if anybody does know, please let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I wanted to just talk a little bit more about what was being spoken about at the World Aviation Festival last week, and uh, in particular, what's going on in my home country, the UK. Um, so, in Europe in particular, we've seen a, a huge... Um, kind of discrepancy between airlines in terms of what they're getting from their governments in bailouts. So, um, for example, Lufthansa got almost $10 billion um, to bail it out of the, uh, of the COVID downturn. Other airlines are getting practically nothing. So, here in the UK, there are no bailouts specifically. The government made clear quite early on in the crisis that there wouldn't be any handouts. We did have the furlough scheme, of course, which saw um, airline workers kind of looked after to some degree. And um, there were loans to UK-based businesses of up to £600 million. Um, poor old Virgin Atlantic couldn't even access that loan. They've had to find their own way to refinance the airline and get through the crisis. Um, and last week at, um, at, the, at the festival, EasyJet CEO Johan Lundgren said that the UK has not done enough to support its airlines. Now, EasyJet did get the £600 million loan. But really, when you compare that to Lufthansa's $10 billion, it's like a drop in the ocean. Um, so they've been forced, even though they went into the crisis in a really good financial position, he said, you know, they had no choice but to sell aircraft and then lease them back, close bases. They've done a share sale to raise several hundred million. You know, they're cutting their staff. It's, it's a really sad state of affairs. Um, and the day he was speaking was actually the day after our lovely Chancellor Rishi Sunak did his um, autumn budget. Um, and he, within the budget, he said that the furlough scheme was going to be extended, which was very welcome. You know, it's it's not as generous as it was last time. But uh, Mr. Lundgren said it was welcomed, but he said that it didn't go far enough. What the sector was hoping for in the autumn budget was at least the removal of air passenger duty. Now, anyone that's flown in or out of the UK will be um, painfully aware of APD. Um, it's a unique tax to, to the UK aviation market, which on short haul flights adds around 13 quid to your flight. 
So on a domestic flight, it adds it to both directions, which makes it rather painful for smaller airlines like our ex-airline Flybe to operate flights in a, a competitively priced way. Um, UK airlines were also pushing for a waiver of air traffic control fees, but there was nothing, nothing in the budget on these fronts at all. So Mr. Lundgren warned that UK aviation really faces being uncompetitive in the future. You know, he pointed out that we have one of the strongest airline industries going into this crisis and that coming out of it, we may well fall behind other countries because we're just not doing enough. Um, he warned that competition would be distorted as a result of the uneven distribution of these bailouts. And you can see, you know, if if one airline is is getting several billion dollars worth of, of money injected into the business and another one's getting nothing and is having to mortgage everything it owns just to get through, it's not going to be a happy ending. It's not going to be able to go back and compete in a, in a on a level playing field. Um, so it was interesting that actually those thoughts were upheld by one of his closest competitors, which is Ryanair. Um, so they're, <laughs> I, I would argue EasyJet, but that's just me. <laughs> so their director of marketing, Dara Brady, um, was on a low-cost carrier panel, and he warned that the UK is at a real risk of losing all its low-fare air travel or not being able to offer low-fare air travel anymore. He warned that some low-cost carriers, and he didn't name any names, but he said that some would not make it out of coronavirus. Um, they would not make it out of the crisis in one piece. And those that do will have massively high levels of debt to service. Um, and just saying, you know, that they will need to add money onto the fair prices in order to stay competitive, in order to just keep themselves running in a profitable manner. And then he said, you know, the fact that we've still got this APD, it's going to put airlines off basing aircraft in the UK. You know, when you've got an alternative in Paris or Germany or Spain, they're going to go there. And the government is at a real risk of cutting off capacity and therefore our access to low fares unless it takes a more proactive approach to stimulating the market. So, again, another really interesting discussion. And, uh, you know, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Tom, but I do think <laughs> well. maybe the UK government hasn't done it quite enough to support aviation. I mean, I mean, I was already a bit sort of not on the side of APD before coronavirus, you know, because um, it was brought in for environmental reasons. And um, it was really interesting because when I was at the Airlines for Europe um, get together in Brussels in March, I think it was Willie Walsh was pointing out that not a single penny of the millions or billions that have actually been paid in APD has actually gone to any vaguely environmental project whatsoever. Yeah. So they've implemented this in tax for environmental reasons and um and then they just spend it on yeah. whatever. Yeah. I mean that's the biggest argument. If it went into a pot for sustainability and went towards I don't know funding sustainable aviation fuel production in the UK or I don't know, um, helping airlines offset their carbon emissions, then you could kind of see the logic. But right now, it is just a, a kind of funny tax that we stick on stuff and have absolutely no kind of logic to what the reason why. Imagine if you were paying that much on top of every long distance train ticket, you know, there'd be a riot in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Well, our trains are completely unaffordable anyway, but uh, there you go. <laughs> and it was, I, I think... Uh, 
it was only the week before that Alex Cruz was in Parliament talking about, I mean, he had to kind of go up in front of the Transport Committee to um, validate the reason why British Airways is laying off so many people. But he said the same. He said, you know, if you want to help us remove the APD, whether it's temporary or permanent, just get rid of it, you know, and we'll pay into some sort of environmental part. You know, airlines are already investing billions in trying to be more environmentally friendly. And to then add another cost onto a ticket and make it unfair for them to run these services, it just seems illogical. But uh, they, they, I'll get off my soapbox now, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't let me get on mine. <laughs> I think quickly before we get too deep into that one we should move on um, and I wanted to talk quickly about sort of our good friend the 737 Max which we've oh, yes, been very restrained about quite recently <laughs> um, and of course the A380 but um, while Joe is possibly known for Boeing bashing when it comes to the 737 Max I have some good news this week. <laughs> <laughs> oh thanks for that Tom. <laughs> <laughs> no um, so the European Aviation Safety Agency, as we all know, was completing its test flights of the uh, the baby 737 MAX, the Dash 7, um, last month, was it? Or earlier this month? Yeah, it was know. earlier. The be very beginning of yeah. September, I believe. Yeah. First week in September, yeah. So um, they finished that. There was about 10 hours of um, flight testing, which I think was about the same as... Um, Transport Canada and the FAA. Um, and then they all came together and had a big meeting, um, which we don't really know what sort of went on in the meeting yet. But what we do know is that um, clearly things are in motion because following these meetings, um, the executive director of VIASA said that for the first time in a year and a half, I can say there's an end in sight to work on the MAX, um, which I think will be a relief for Boeing and airlines as well because i mean this time last year we would have never thought that it would still be grounded now you know we were expecting no. it to be um sort of december early january at the latest um so it's sort of positive i think what they said they were going to do was aim for um around november for lifting the ban um but obviously it's not just as simple as lifting the ban um in europe because um, if you remember when the bans were first brought down, um, a couple of European countries were sort of quicker than others to um, bring them down. And even now, the rules are a bit different depending on where you are in Europe because yeah. you cannot fly a 737 MAX in Germany at all. They won't allow it. Right. Um, but we've seen plenty of ferry flights elsewhere. I mean, you've got your Air Italy one from, yeah. uh, was it Milan to Budapest? Um, yeah, it had to take a rather funny route to avoid yeah. certain airspaces. <laughs> so um, it's going to be interesting because I, I don't think there's going to be a um, joined we're lifting bands between everyone. So... No, and um, I think, you know, it would be unusual. Uh, we were listening to um, WestJet's um, CEO or CIO, and he was saying that, you know, if it does get lifted in quarter four, which it probably will, there's still an awful lot of work to do. You know, you've got hundreds and hundreds of pilots that need to go through simulator training. Not every airline has its own simulator, so there'll be great long waiting lists for the kind of communal simulators that Boeing's providing in various places around the world. They all need to do that. The aircraft themselves, um, WestJet has 13 on the ground in the US, and they've estimated around 2,000 man hours of work just to get them back into a, an airway 
trustworthy condition after this long period of storage. So, you know, I think it's good news that it's kind of like the like you said, the end is in sight at last. But I think it's still going to be early into next year before we see any actually doing passenger service. Mm. Um, but also briefly, I, I realise we've been going on for quite a while now. Um, oh, Tom! But <laughs> I did, I did briefly want to touch on a, a sort of a couple of A380 stories. Yes, um, please. So I'll, I'll run through them quickly. Um, We're quite happy to listen to A380 <laughs> stories, don't you worry? <laughs> yeah. um, so, firstly, the final Airbus A380. Um, fuselage has now been constructed earlier this year you were writing about it um making its way to toulouse and now it's all all been bolted together and um it's just a bit sad really because 15 years after the aircraft's first flight no more are going to get put together Um, that's the very last one you know if you were the the engineer tightening the last screw you'd be like oh heartbreaking (laughs) i mean there's still quite a lot of work to go because um my understanding is at the moment they've only sort of put the big bits together and then there's still lots of little bits to go on it although um it's it's like there's bits missing from the um vertical stabilizer for example Um, yeah so it's it's still got a way to go um it needs engines as well that would be helpful (laughs) well yes (laughs) (laughs) um but i mean what's even sadder is like we don't know when this is going to be delivered because obviously i think they were aiming for 2021 when they suspended the program in last year but yeah um no one's taking their uh, a380s at the moment obviously a and a was no. meant to get one in april yeah the, that's been delayed until god knows when um and emirates i think they're not taking them at the moment, but I'm I mean, sure this one's in Emirates livery, isn't it? Yeah. It's uh, you can yeah, see a bit of the uh, Emirates, Emirates livery one. going on it, but uh, um, they've said I'm that sure they might cancel the order for the last couple. So, I, I it would be an interesting one. I feel personally that that won't happen just because I feel like Airbus would even give them away for free to Emirates before <laughs> before just being seen to scrap a brand new aircraft. Well, you know? yes, that would be incredibly wasteful. Um, but I'm sure if that did happen, that would be a very sort of confidential under the table deal. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, sort of moving on to our next one, um, Highfly's A380, which is another one of our favourites, um, has been back in the sky. Um, it's flown its first sort of um, full cargo flight without seats inside since um, the airline announced um, in early July that it had ripped out all the seats. And so this is it, the world's first proper A380 freighter. I mean, it's a bit proper, <laughs> but it's the. It, I, I'll give you the world's first A380 freighter, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, it's um, interesting. It sort of started in Bahia, where it's based, and Aaron's probably going to kill me for how I've pronounced that. Popped <laughs> <laughs> um, across to Istanbul for a technical stop, and then it went down to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And I must admit, I don't know where it's gone from there, but um, I probably should have double-checked that. But, um, I mean, if you're interested, feel free to look it up. Awesome. Great to see um, it back in the sky. Yeah. And sort of one final point that I wanted to pop on with the A380, this is my last one, um, <laughs> is that Qantas now won't be flying the um, aircraft internationally for three years. So it operated its last international flight on Friday, um, which saw one of the A380s going from Dresden to Los Angeles. 
um, not Los Angeles, um, the Mojave Desert, which to me is Los Angeles, but yeah, um, where they're I'm sure other people would. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's um, it's actually Victorville um, in the Mojave Desert, but not Mojave Air and Spaceport, which is yeah. key thing to sort of grip there. Um, Must be getting pretty it. full over there. <laughs> There's an awful I mean, lot I'm of sure aircraft out there. Everywhere. Well, I mean, they'll get some space soon when um, the FAA um, recertifies the 737 Max because Southwest can clear. A good portion of tarmac then i'm sure <laughs> definitely definitely um, but yeah so we're not going to see that for a while and it's just sort of a bit sad because it, it's all sort of doom and gloom news about the a380 at the moment other than the high fly story um, yeah it is well yeah. <laughs> i don't know really how to make that a, a happier ending tom but uh, um, but i, well, I, I, mean, I would like to say british airways that... has um scheduled its a380s in for the autumn so maybe fingers crossed we'll see some back mm. in the skies mm. Mm. <laughs> i don't know um i think the the real happy ending here is that Qantas so far has said that they will be flying in three years time so until we hear other otherwise You've got to hope so with those brand new yeah. first class suites on board. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I mean, they've just refitted it. That's why it came from Dresden. So. Yeah. 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 Fingers crossed. And uh, I, I hope we haven't flown our last A380 passenger flight. I really do. So I guess that's all for today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And as usual, we welcome your feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a rating on your favourite podcast player. Thank you for listening. Bye.